Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Vertical Space, a podcast at the intersection of technology and flight. We are your hosts, Jim Barry and Luka Tomjanovic, and here we look at the most important forces shaping the market of advanced air mobility, with a particular focus on why and how they matter to those building a business in this very exciting and growing industry. Luca, it's critical that the FAA never mandate equipage, but that it mandate performance. Key to the achievement of the full potential of AAM is a performance-based ecosystem empowered by open architecture software. The traditional air traffic management system that the FAA has operated all these years is the antithesis of that. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, Before we introduce our next guest, who we think you're really going to enjoy, uh, we want to thank you for your comments on the podcast. We've had a great list of guests. They've been uh, really terrific in in many different ways. Remember to keep providing us your suggestions, um, other guests you want to hear from, got a great list lined up, and other topics you want us to address. So speaking of great guests, uh, hold on to your hat when listening to this podcast with David Grizzle. For those of you who know David, you won't be surprised by his intelligent, bold, and provocative concepts, some reinforcing the status quo and some inspiring us to think at a completely different level as we consider the future of transportation. David is more confident in the value, timeline, and utility of advanced air mobility than most you'll listen to. And this is coming from a former airline executive and former chief operating officer of the FAA. You'll hear David's perspective on the importance of equipage and those with better equipage getting better routes. Additionally, you'll hear a lively and potentially controversial exchange around open systems. And listen to a fresh perspective on increasing the availability of pilots, a really timely discussion Uh, given all the uh, information in the news about how we need so many more pilots. And listen how the FAA is head of the certification of vehicles and preparing for the operationalizing of the vehicles. And David's comments about the importance of muddling through. Clearly, we always need to focus on safety, as he explains. Listen to his comments on muddling through versus being a stickler for perfection as the advanced air mobility industry evolves a great part of the podcast, and the importance of being able to compromise and that the growth of the industry will come about starting with what is available now versus waiting for a full-fledged advanced air mobility infrastructure. It's a great conversation and one that we recorded back in November. Enjoy the podcast. This episode of the Vertical Space Podcast is brought to you by UAvionics. Uavionics is the leader in low size, weight, and power certified avionics for manned, unmanned, and advanced air mobility aircraft. Let Uavionics help you achieve your goals, whether that be type certification, airspace access, or beyond visual line of sight operations. Uavionics has certified and certifiable communications, navigation, and surveillance avionics for your aircraft. So head over to uavionics.com or Google it to see how you can start flying safer and move your platform forward into shared airspace. So it's a great pleasure to have David Grizzle on our show. Uh, David, welcome to uh, the Vertical Space. Okay, glad to be on here, Jim. 
David Grizzle currently directs Dazzle Partners, a firm providing operational strategy consulting in the aerospace industry. Previously, David served as the chief operating officer of the FAA's air traffic organization, where he led FAA's 33,000 professional controllers, technicians, engineers, and support personnel who are responsible for keeping air traffic moving safely and efficiently. While at the FAA, David also served as the FAA's chief counsel and acting deputy administrator. Before joining the FAA, David was with Continental Airlines and its affiliates for 22 years, retiring as the senior vice president of customer experience. In this role, throughout a data-driven constant quality improvement process, he led Continental to address persistent deficits in product delivery to improve the total travel experience for Continental's customers. During a leave of absence from Continental starting in 2004, David served for 14 months with the United States Department of State in Kabul, Afghanistan as attache, senior advisor and coordinator for transportation and infrastructure. David currently serves on several corporate and not-for-profit boards of directors, and David is a graduate of both Harvard College and Harvard Law School. David, it is a delight to have you on the show, and we've been looking forward to this. So again, welcome, and, uh, and please meet Luca. Hello, Luca. And by the way, Jim, I'm just really grateful to be on here. You and I go back a long ways, and it's good to be together in this particular context. Well, thank you, David. Thank Thanks, you. David. So the first question we ask everybody, David, is, is there anything that very few in the industry agree with you on? Jim, unlike you, I don't tend to be an outlier in my thinking. And so I believe that most of my views are the views held by the majority of people who are informed in the industry. And so, no, I, I, I don't think so that there are areas that only a few people agree with me on, uh, you know, as we begin, as we go through this podcast, you'll be able to m make your own discernment as to whether you think that I'm an outlier in areas that I don't recognize, but no, I think that my views are pretty near the top of the bell curve. And is there something from your experiences in Afghanistan that, you would like to share with our audience, perhaps as it relates to the use of unmanned aircraft systems or broader transportation? I think the one thing I would note is that the civilian side of the federal government works in a very different way from corporate America. And the values and the pace not the integrity, but the values and the pace at which they work is different from what obtains in corporate America. And I think that because of that, those of us that are attempting to do something very new in the industry must be patient and use all of the discernment that we can to ascertain the the real concerns of the the federal regulators who are our the wickets that we must go through and assume their good faith in what they're doing but be attentive to how we can help them accomplish the purposes they have even though again they may be doing it in a way and at a pace that is different from what we're accustomed to in other arenas. Is there an example that you can share with us on how this dynamic manifests itself? Are you talking about Afghanistan, Luca? Or no, just generally. Today? Well, I think that a, a, a very good example is the small UAS rule, which the FAA came out 
uh, with, oh gosh, it's almost a decade ago now, I think. And in that, they give a great deal of lip service to promulgating a performance-based regulation. But in fact, when you read the regulation, it was very prescriptive. And in conversations that I had at the time with Peggy Gilligan, who was running um, aviation safety at that point, she assured me that the FAA would be very energetic and liberal with their waivers and, and, and authorizations so that over time they would hollow out the prescriptive aspects of the rule and it would in fact be performance-based. I was very frustrated because I couldn't see why we didn't just go immediately to a performance-based regulation which would have avoided any ossification in the industry. But true to her word and her the word of her successors, the, the FAA has in fact been very liberal and creative in granting waivers and special authorizations under part 107. And so in fact, I don't think the industry has been ossified. But again, if this had been an interaction between two corporate entities, I think that they would have come to performance-based regulation at the very outset. Well, let's talk about the FAA a little bit. Obviously, it is a major stakeholder in aviation. In what ways is it ready or not ready for advanced air mobility? I think that the FAA is ready and, in fact, is ahead of where most people would have predicted they would be as it relates to the certification of vehicles. I think we are all going to be surprised at how quickly the FAA certifies some eVTOLs. Where I don't think they are ready is in the broad area of operationalizing these vehicles. I believe that the that in the area of, of UTM or, or, or UAV traffic management, the FAA is really only beginning and is still in a, in a very theoretical posture with respect to designing both the the rules, the protocols, and especially the, the, the infrastructure that will be necessary to move the vehicles that they will have certified into something that looks like normalization in the airspace. So when do you think that we will have the first eVTOL certified by the FAA? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it will be before, it will be before the end of 2024. Keep in mind that the FAA has experience in certifying vehicles that have components in their engineering that are distinctly different. Whether you're talking about graphite hulls or fly-by-wire, they, they know how to go about designing an approval protocol that applicants can pursue. And so although the, the, the components the number of components in a in a UAV, a, a, a commercial uh, passenger UAV, are more numerous than what you would find in a standard aircraft that has new features in it. They're not distinctly different in terms of the methodology that is required from the FAA, again, to design a protocol for approving the individual components. Mm-hmm. And so... I think that when people when people look at all of the the different aspects of a UAV that must be certified they they conclude that in fact it's a completely different process but it really isn't 
it's applying a process that the FAA is familiar with. Just they're doing it multiple times with respect to each vehicle. Uh, what about the certification of some of the smaller UAS? I think there has been a, an anticipation that we would have already seen the first wave of commercial drones being certified by the FAA. And yet that is still probably a year away. You're talking about unmanned drones in this case, right? Correct. Yeah. I think that that the reason that you're not seeing more progress there is that all of those require that you embrace the the airspace limits and the restrictions of Part 107 right away. And I don't think the FAA sees its way through the operationalization of those vehicles and therefore is giving less intense attention to the certification of the vehicles. David, I have to ask you, given that Afghanistan has been mentioned, and listen, nobody has your background with what you've done and with the work you did over in Afghanistan. How did that work in setting up the transportation system alter how you did your work after that experience? I mean, both with the FAA, but also as you see the future of advanced air mobility, how was it altered based on your Afghanistan experience? Jim, I learned an important lesson that has immense applicability to this area at this particular time. And that is that I learned when we were attempting to put together a professional, safe, if not completely modern, air transportation system in Afghanistan, that one must be willing to muddle through. It is very easy when you come out of big Fortune 500 companies with first world regulatory structures to want to be a, in a sense, a stickler for perfection in every area and to insist that everything be done 100% right. And when you're doing something in Afghanistan, you have got to be willing to compromise. And, and again, to use my phrase, to muddle through. Mm -hmm. Now, in this particular, in the, in the question of advanced um, aerial mobility, am I talking about cutting corners on safety? Absolutely not. But what I am talking about is that we have to be prepared to launch the industry with vehicles that have capabilities that, that we, may, we may eventually conclude are either excessive or inadequate, but to not, not, to not withhold the launching of our products until we are certain that we're hitting the bullseye of the market. We've got to be willing to muddle through and recalibrate our products as we move forward and understand the market better and as the market matures. Right. Perfection is the enemy of the good. It totally is. It totally is. Very interesting. So so let's talk a little bit about infrastructure. From the many conversations we've had, David, one of the constant comments that come up and say, well, it's one thing to have the vehicles and you know, the airspace and the like, but the thing that most people forget about is the infrastructure that's required. So how does advanced aerial mobility infrastructure compare to the automobile? Let's say in terms of licensing, insurance, rules of the road, vehicle regulation, fuel concerns, roads, motels, gas stations. 
Um, it's more than just connecting to the vertebrate. What are your thoughts? I think that the industry will begin to grow using what is available now. I think if we if we wait and are intimidated because of the absence of what will be required for a fully built out industry, we'll never get started. I mean, if you just if you look at electric cars, for example, there are I, I don't know what the percentages are, Jim, but there must be many, many multiples of electric uh, charging stations now than what there were when when the first Teslas hit the road. I think you're going to see an evolution in the infrastructure that's required for advanced aerial mobility that's very similar to what developed with respect to electric uh, surface vehicles. If we wait until the infrastructure is built out that we will need for the industry in full maturity, we'll never build the industry. But if you look, for example, at charging stations, I'm confident that the number of charging stations that are now available is many multiples of what it was when the first Tesla hit the road. And I believe it will be the same with, with AAM, where the first vehicles, will they will simply use what is available now. And so just to use a, a, a geographic area so close to where I am right now, I think that you will have the large hub airports like Dulles building out a modest equipage and then a small number of, of satellite airports like, for example, Weir's Cave, or I guess it's now called Shenandoah Valley Airport, who want to be able to provide to their customers, uh, call it an air taxi type operation. They will build out modest equipage. And as the operators use these modest equipment provisions, the market will then be, grow and then it'll eventually, it will eventually become ubiquitous. But I think that initially, initially, the operators of the vehicles will use essentially what is available right now. They won't be requiring a special, special landing ports. So they won't be requiring uh, uh, special hangers for their, for their equipment. They'll be using what's available right now as the market builds. It'll be interesting to see how what the impact of this gradual rollout of the infrastructure will have on the business case. Well, what, I mean, I think again, this is not un, this is not uncommon. This is the way it works. Mm. I mean, whether you, I mean, whether you look at something again like like Tesla or something completely look look at LinkedIn. LinkedIn is nothing like it was in, earlier on, mm -hmm. and so I think that 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 our innovative culture is very familiar with uh, recalibrating to perfection, starting out at the earliest possible use case. Your comments about focusing on, on what works and muddling through, for example, from Afghanistan is shaping how you see the future integration of advanced air mobility. How much of your experience, David, at the FAA is shaping this answer? Well, very much from a different perspective, but the same the same dynamic is at work in that the FAA does not take big steps if it can at all avoid it. It would much prefer to take incremental steps. Mm. And I think that it will pursue a similar strategy here. 
I think the one place where, and we can talk about this more, gentlemen, but the one place where we want to be cautious that the FAA, in taking an incremental approach, does not make decisions that become irreversible is in the area of, of UTM or, or, or air traffic management. Because there, I think w that w the industry is going to want the FAA to do to make some decisions that are not purely incremental. Before we go to the airspace integration problem, uh, I just have to ask, based on your comment, if you look at the all of the market participants, do you think that they are muddling through or do they think they're seeking perfection? I think that they are publicly speaking of a program that will lead them to perfection while privately acknowledging that they must muddle through. Investors are not, investors are not comfortable with founders admitting that they are muddling through, even though they may suspect that is what ha is happening. So I think, I think that there is a disparity between the public face and the private experience among vehicle developers. Interesting. Okay. So how will these vehicles, and I'm, I'm not only referring to EV tolls, but even some of the smaller unmanned commercial drones doing deliveries or inspection, um, how will they integrate with ATC and into the national airspace system? Well, I think you really have to differentiate the two in that I, I believe that your piloted EV tolls and other urban mobility craft are going to approach normalization much faster than larger unmanned vehicles. And the reason quite simply is that autonomous flight involves a completely different set of validations than what piloted flight, even with with technologically very novel vehicles requires. I don't believe that we will have autonomous flight in this country until five to 10 years after we have autonomous surface transportation. That's interesting. See, my personal view is the other way around. I, I think that a lot of the technologies that are involved in or that are supporting autonomy will arguably reach their maturity in the air uh, sooner than on the ground just because of a less complex environment, uh, an environment that is no stranger to adopting increasing levels of automation, if you look at the history of, of aviation, and uh, a lot less edge cases, arguably, to deal with. I hope you are right. But if you are wrong, the reason you will be wrong is because the reliability standard in all areas of aviation is several orders of magnitude greater than the reliability required for terrestrial transportation. And I, I am just doubtful that the industry will be able to meet that higher level of reliability until they have gone through a teething period on the ground. Yeah, and I think it all depends ultimately at what the mission is and, and what is the combined air and ground risk and the value of the operation and, and the outcomes 
that you get with with autonomy. David, what about the vehicles that will be flying below 400 feet? It seems like today the FAA is you know, almost turning a blind eye. Maybe this is too harsh to say, but uh, anything that flies below 400 feet, you know, not my problem kind of attitude. One, do you agree with this? And if so, how long do you think that they can afford to maintain that attitude? Well, I think that they are taking that attitude implicitly in certain classes of airspace with still very light vehicles. But you're not going to have the type of industry developments that we're talking about, Luca, unless they're talking about heavier vehicles and beginning to move into, say, Class C and D airspace. And what about a a package delivery use case that is using, you know, six, seven, ten pound payload, small drones that are flying, you know, in the surface area of a class Bravo or Charlie airspace. And they're flying below 400 feet. So technically this is something that, you know, the FAA authorizes flights even today through lanes. But yet as the intensity of these operations increases and the frequency of flights at some point, they have to start paying attention. What what will that tipping point be? <laughs> Certainly the first crash will be the first tipping point. Yeah, I didn't uh, want to say that, but <laughs> I was thinking about it. It's, yeah. So what happens after a you know, after a crash happens, after perhaps some people lose their lives. Well, that out. yeah, I think that, as I said earlier, the FAA is much further ahead in vehicle certification than it is in, in uh, traffic management development. And I believe that, that I, I hope there is not an incident, but there may very well be an incident that is required before the FAA accelerates the process of deciding how, in fact, it is going to achieve UTM in a rapidly growing market. And and that and and that, by the way, is where that I think that you're going to begin making some first steps towards autonomy. In that, even before you have. Uh, truly autonomous flight, I believe that there will be a requirement that operators have the kind of situational awareness through either ADSB in and out or some type of communication just between vehicles and a very powerful system for for marking restricted zones and so forth, that I think the FA will require that operators have access to that even before they're close to autonomous flight. But that, but having access to that type of situational awareness will be a critical precursor to autonomous flight. See, ultimately, ultimately, the FAA will need to decide how it is going to accomplish low altitude, dense, probably low velocity traffic management. And the worst case for the industry would be for them to decide that they will do it through 
an expansion of the existing air traffic management system because that will that will ossify the industry. David, do you see a scenario where a single bad accident completely shutting down the UAM service model? So for example, you know, back at the New York City, the Pan Am building accident did for the rooftop helicopter operations in the 70s. I don't think that it will shut it down for a long period for the simple reason that the amount of social utility that is available through this new innovation is so great that it will overcome the reticence of regulators to move forward following an adverse event. I mean, this is this is this is like it is in many respects, Jim. This is like the 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 five G. Uh, 5G altimeter controversy that's going on at this exact moment, where that the the cell phone operators and uh, aviators are in a conflict about the impact of C-band on altimeters, and I don't know how it will be resolved uh, specifically, but I am confident that. 5G will ultimately move forward. And I think that the use of AAM is very similar in terms of the amount of social pressure, the, the sort of the, the, the just the head pressure behind this innovation so that it will overcome a momentary reticence to move forward based on an accident. You, know, you are you are very bullish on this space, David. You're a- I am. I am. I really am. Uh, and I wasn't initially. But uh, I believe that the utility that we will derive from this is immense. And that uh, and the, the, the sooner we can develop the collaborative tools necessary mm-hmm. for normalization, uh, the better we will be able to access this utility. What changed your mind? What made you more of an optimist? I think two things, Jim. One was hearing the progress that the FAA was making in terms of certification, that it was as if a switch had been flipped. And I realized, no, this this is going to be a thing. This is going to be a thing. And the other is is looking more carefully at the vehicles that are being developed. And I'm not going to name any any specifically, but to see the utility that they can provide in terms of giving small communities access to air transportation again, of it being a way to provide pilots. Uh, to provide a, a, a storehouse of pilots, even with the 1,500-hour rule. And so I began to see that it's going to occur and that there are use cases that will be ver- that will have very high social utility to them. Couldn't agree more. In the last 15 years, a lot of technology in air traffic management has been introduced, and yet the utilization of that technology to increase the benefits in terms of shorter track miles and fewer irregular operations has 
you know, really fallen way short of predictions. So first of all, why do we have such a poor track record? And secondly, how do we avoid having the same disappointment with AAM? The reason that we have fallen short of our objectives on almost all of the next-gen technology is that the FAA has lacked the political power to make hard decisions that gave favor to fully equipped operators. All of the routes that require, require net, that require precision approaches only work when all of the operators using an approach are equally equipped. Despite the ADSB out mandate, there are still many operators, and many of them are the military, who, do, who are not equipped, and consequently, the FAA has been unable to, use, to consistently use the high-precision approaches that they have designed. And when the FAA has considered creating essentially HOV lanes so that if you were coming into O'Hare and you are fully equipped and your pilots are trained for the, the equipage, you you take a you take a fast approach in using the tightest RMP routes, but they receive too much objection from non-equipped users to do that. And so, as we go forward with with AAM, if we are not able to create corridors or other places where the most equipped vehicles can operate at the highest level of precision that that is available technologically, then we will end up ossifying the industry and falling short of our potential the same way we have with all of our next-gen technology. And so that's the reason that I believe that it's imperative that the FAA develop a program for managing UAVs uh, and piloted low-altitude vehicles that is different from the system that they use for managing other aircraft. Again, they must be coordinated, but it must be different because its requirements will ultimately be very different. Uh, does that mean, David, that unless you mandate certain equipage, that you cannot achieve certain goals, but at the same time, mandating always faces a lot of pressure. So therefore you are managing all these exceptions to the rules, which make the system even more complex to manage. So you're stuck in this negative feedback loop that keeps perpetuating. So if that's not the route to take, and if the FAA cannot ultimately have enough political leverage to execute on these programs, then then who can? Luca, it's critical that the FAA never mandate equipage, but that it mandate performance. Key to the achievement of the full potential of AAM is a performance-based ecosystem empowered by open architecture software. The traditional air traffic management system that the FAA has operated all these years is the antithesis of that. It is very equipment specific and 
its architecture is completely closed and dominated by large program-based contractors mm-hmm. who are not in a position to be nimble in developing or incorporating other technology that's developed by others. If, if, we, if the FAA is not able to achieve or to move towards a UTM that is different from that, then the industry will be held back tremendously. Do you you sense certain reluctance uh, by the FAA to allow third parties to deal with safety critical data that would be associated with open, open architecture systems? I believe the FAA understands the importance of this, but does not know how to achieve it. But I don't think that they are digging in their heels in this regard. There's some great work, by the way, being done by NASA in this area that the FAA is receptive to. I don't believe that the FAA is opposed in any a priori sense to an open architecture approach, but it is an area of inexperience and consequently of, of, of concern and reticence. And that is the reason that I believe that the industry has got to be very proactive in terms of engaging the FAA and presenting solutions and helping the FAA to get comfortable with solutions. I mean, I think some of the work that you mentioned, Lance, earlier in our conversation, I believe, I think that's a, it's an excellent example of where the FAA was able to get comfortable with some third party uh, participation in the approval process. And that, that type of comfort has, must be expanded to additional areas. Are we going down the road of open architecture? I don't think that we have foreclosed that path, but neither are we moving down it as energetically as we need to in order to keep up with the development of, of, of new vehicle technology. One of the things that, I mean, I will just throw out, this is a very radical idea, but one of the things that, that I would throw out as an idea is that you merge the Next Gen Advisory Committee and the Advanced Aviation Advisory Committee that the FAA has. So, right. so that you, in a sense, you bring the proponents and the potential opponents uh, together into the same advisory group uh, and, begin, and begin exploring our needed regulatory infrastructure developments through one advisory committee. Because again, if you have... If you have the proponents in one room and the opponents in another room, it's much harder to reach a consensus than when you've got them both in the same room yelling at one another. And you said there wasn't anything that few in the industry agree with you on. (laughs) Well, okay. I feel like everything everything you're saying right now, few few agree with you on. (laughs) Well, maybe I just assumed, Jim, Jim, that once they hear me say it, they'll immediately agree. (laughs) It's what makes you fresh and uh, and unique, David. That's great. So, uh, you mentioned uh, use cases earlier. We, I, I, I'm really eager to hear what what are the use cases that you think best apply to AAM. I think that the first uses will be 
piloted air taxi operations, essentially, six to nine passengers. I think they will be commonplace within, within this decade. Again, piloted air taxi, six to nine passengers, but with all of the uh, eVTOL or other innovative technology that that we've been talking about. And I think the other the other use case, the other use case is for really Uber replacements. Again, piloted, piloted, uh, smaller gauge, probably two to four passengers. I don't think they will be as, as common because since they've got to be piloted, they're going to be expensive to operate. But I believe that they will also be common within this, this decade. Again, not autonomous, but piloted. And I think that particularly the air taxis, I think the proliferation of those will be such a boon to small communities that you will develop a real head of steam behind the expansion of it once areas begin to see how much benefit they get from having those that type of transportation available to them. What about commercial drone use cases? As you have alluded to previously, I think that movement of goods will be the, the first use cases. Going back to something I said earlier about how that the first uses of AAM will be ones that employ essentially whatever infrastructure is available right now. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure there's an advantage to moving, I don't call them even 200 pound drones back and forth over, over say 100 mile distances. If you're talking about delivering de- delivering packages, maybe they're all, maybe they're within the seventy the seventy pound limits of, of existing Part One Hundred Seven operations. I think it's going to be a while before people are are, are are prepared for drones to be landing on their front porch or, or wherever it is they land wherever it is they do land, and so I'm I, I'm just not as positive that they're going to evolve so quickly because I believe that there's more difference in behavior that is required for those for that for, for that particular modality to develop if you look at if you look at the evolution of a small uav it has been explosive i mean all of the industrial applications that have come about through the use of of small uav i mean it is just shocking luca i mean whole whole industries are being transformed the whole area of 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 infrastructure inspection pipelines bridges communication towers that that work has been transformed by small uav and i think that when you have use cases that are equally compelling the, the the market will find a way to serve those, but I, I just don't think those have, have <laughs> I don't think they've raised their heads quite yet. David, when you were talking about the flying taxis, I have to ask who's going to operate them? And, and also I and also if you could, and you have a great perspective on this, what's the role of the major airlines as it relates to the operating of these flying taxis? I think the operators of these of, of what I'm calling air taxis, I think they will most likely be initially the regional airlines. I think it'll just be a down gauge for the regional airlines that will enable them to open up 
uh, smaller markets that would never be economical or or, or possibly even even uh, environmentally accessible uh, to uh, to existing regional aircraft. So I expect I expect the first operators of EV tall air taxis will be regional operators, and there probably will be also some startups that will operate in the same fashion. The place that I see the the majors, uh, the role I see them playing is really being a source of capital because it's going to be advantageous to them. Again, just imagine all of the additional passengers that a major will have access to if they can have their hubs being fed by a whole new set of small gauge uh, aircraft. And so I, I, th I think they will be sources of capital. I think the regional airlines will be the principal operators. And then when you get down to what I'm calling the Uber replacements, I think it's very likely that Uber will in fact operate those. David, on the topic of pilot training, uh, eVTOLs will make it easy for pilots to get say 1500 hours, but are they good hours towards making good pilots? And what are your overall thoughts on pilot training? I think that people commonly misconceive the pilot requirements that will that will obtain in this area and that these pilots are going to have to receive some training. Uh, they're going to at least have to have the equivalent of a, of a private pilot's license and probably more. They're probably going to have to have something that even begins to approach commercial. But having achieved that level, I think that this flying will be a great source of additional hours enabling pilots to fulfill the 1500 hours required for an ATP. And I think these are largely good hours. I mean, these are, this is not like pulling a banner along the New Jersey shore, <laughs> which are completely cheap hours, which cause a pilot actually to lose skills while they're gaining their 1500 hours. I think that if you're piloting a small EV tall, uh, especially if you're piloting in in uh, an urban area or, or an area that, that is approaching Class B airspace, I think you're going to be developing good skills and so that we will find that these pilots, having acquired their 1,500 hours in eVTOL air taxi operations, are better equipped than what, better, better skilled rather, than what they were at 250 hours unlike so many of the pilots that we're finding now who are less skilled when they achieve 1500 hours than what they were when they had 250. And do you think, David, that this is true also if those pilots are flying simplified vehicle operations and aircraft and flight decks that are remarkably different from what we know today? Yeah, because I think the, that although they may be different, they, they still present the type of, of man-machine interface that that you have when you're flying a, a commercial air transport category aircraft? Well, perhaps they don't. Some some have interfaces that you interact over what looks like an iPad and control the movement of the airplane in a very radical way. Yes, but I mean, quite honestly, again, I'm not a pilot, so I can't speak with any authority here, but is that how different is that than flying, than a fly-by-wire with a joystick? I just don't know, but I'm not convinced that it's all that different. David, what do you what do you say to the person who, when they hear about, given the current pilot shortages, 
what are you talking about? A five-person vehicle with a piloted five-person vehicle, you know, given the enormous shortages we have today, what would you say to that? Well, again, we have enormous shortages of 1500 hour pilots. We don't have enormous shortages that, that can't be pretty quickly remedied with pilots with fewer hours than that. I mean, the real challenge we've got right now, Jim, is, is how do you, how do you fill that gap between 250 and 1500 or, or maybe 1250 hours? How do you fill that gap? And so the, these vehicles here are the perfect, the perfect flying and instructional opportunity for pilots who are just coming out of flight school. So I, I think that not only are you not going to have a shortage of these people, but you're going to have, in fact, people lined up in order to do this because it fills a gap that we don't have a good filler for yet. If you fast forward five years and 10 years, what does the industry look like? I think that piloted vehicles will be close to commonplace. I think that unmanned vehicles will be growing in commonality in places that are not congested and that we will have a roadmap for the complete normalization of both manned and unmanned vehicles in all classes of airspace. This is in five years or in 10 no, years? No, 10 years. 10 years. Yep. What about five years? I don't think you will have, I don't think you will have a substantial increase in unmanned vehicles outside of the small UAS category. But I think that, again, I think that you will have, in five years, I believe you will have significant operations by piloted small eVTOLs. So David, given your pretty optimistic perspective, and let's say in 10 years, we achieve a lot of what you're talking about, what government organization or private commercial organization will be most responsible for this rapid success? Well, the FAA is, is critical. It's absolutely critical. But I think if you look at what they've done in the last 10 years, there's every reason to believe that they are willing and capable to lean forward in order to produce the social utility that, that we are talking about here. And so I don't think there is any, I don't think there is any organization, governmental or commercial, that is more important than the FAA in this development. So what advice, David, would you give to someone who wants to start a business in AAM? I think that the actual vehicle space is already a crowded space. I believe that the areas that that are tangential to the vehicles that I'm talking about, traffic management, I'm talking about power, uh, I'm talking about uh, you know some ground infrastructure, I believe those are the places where there are still uh, significant opportunities for investors. And what is the most common misconception or misunderstanding when it comes to this topic in general or the FAA and AAM perhaps in particular? Most people vastly underestimate the challenges for, for navigation on these, for, for achieving air traffic management, for uh, this number of 
uh, of vehicles in complex airspace. I, I think most people, somehow have, they, they have a Jetsons concept that it's just going to happen. And the, the amount of technology and procedural development is really quite significant. And it's got to be done in a way different from the way the FAA has managed and developed air traffic management in the past. I think people commonly misunderstand that. And I think the other thing, and I've touched on this before, I think a lot of people believe that this is basically going to be a complete, it's going to be like buying a car where you buy the car, you, you buy the, the UAV and you jump in the pilot seat and you start flying. And it's not going to be like that. I mean, they're, they're going to be not insignificant pilot training requirements before you're allowed to fly even the smaller of these vehicles. So we have 10 years from now, I mean, significant progress within UAM, AAM, and the like. Uh, what outcomes, David, would be most improved as a result? Again, I'm an airline guy, Jim. You know that. And so I think, I think I always think in terms of passengers. I'm not a, I'm, mm-hmm. uh, and I, again, I believe, I believe that all of the small communities that have lost service because of the 1500 hour rule will see service restored, plus a lot of communities that would have never, have never had air service will find themselves with with the ability to uh, jump on one of these vehicles an hour before flight time, fly 60 miles to their hub airport and go, you know, make a, make a, a, uh, ba- almost a tarmac to tarmac plane to plane transfer. Now, again, you've got some TSA considerations you'll have to manage, but uh, I, I think that you're going to find access to airports dramatically improved through these vehicles. And what's the one point that you would want our audience to most take away from your comments? These vehicles are going to be here sooner than what you think. The full operationalization of them is going to be harder than you think, but the utility that will be derived from their development and their operationalization is greater than you could have ever imagined. What a great way to end the show. David, you're, you're, uh, this has been terrific. Uh, you see the world in a different way. Uh, is there anything we have not asked that you think we should have asked or you'd want to add at the end? No, no, no. I think we touched on all the topics. No, you could tell I'm, 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 I'm bullish and also cautious. Terrific. Luke, anything else from you, sir? No, sir. Yeah, this was fascinating. Thanks a lot, David. (laughs) Thanks, David. Bye-bye. All right, that's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening to the Vertical Space Podcast. Reach out if there are topics that you would like us to discuss, and goodbye until the next episode. Unless mentioned, this podcast is in no way endorsing or promoting any person and or company mentioned, and all opinions within the podcast are solely that of the presenters. The Vertical Space makes no guarantees, warranty, or representation of any information given in this podcast. Any information given is for informational purposes and should be used at your own risk. This podcast is for general, educational, and entertainment purposes only.